This is Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, our continuing podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. My guest today is an old friend, George Hawkins. George is the CEO and general manager of the District of Columbia Water and Sewer Authority, known as affectionately as DC Water. George, welcome. Well, delighted to be here. It's great to have you. George, um, like uh, I think six of the Supreme Court justices went to Harvard Law School. Before that, he was at Princeton University, got his undergraduate degree from Princeton. He's taught at Princeton. He's run not-for-profit organizations. He has been at the Environmental Protection Agency. But it's been at D.C. Water that you have become one of uh, my personal heroes for what you've done to improve water quality in the Potomac River and the Chesapeake Bay downstream. So I know you're getting ready to move on to some other things after a number of years at D.C. Water, but I just want to thank you, George. You've been amazing. Well, Will, I, I really appreciate that. It's been a privilege what I've been able to do with our team at D.C. Water. I just want to let you know um, I did have positions in the past uh, running nonprofits, including a watershed group in New Jersey. That's when I think I first met you. And it was this organization which was always what I looked up to and what I modeled myself after. So we built a really cool watershed group, and we were doing all sorts of interesting things on a smaller scale than what you do here. But this was the model we followed. So I've been following this enterprise and you for as long as I can remember, and I've always admired it. So it's really it's a, quite a pleasure for me uh, to be here today. Uh, George, we'll, we'll, we'll double your uh, check, your payment for <laughs> doing the podcast. That's really nice. Thank you. Um, so we've been sitting around... Chesapeake Bay Foundation headquarters here chatting. There's so many places we could go, but but why don't you give us just to start a, a sense of the size and scope and the meets and bounds of what Washington D.C. De deals with every single day in terms of water and sewage. Sure, uh, D.C. Water. And when I arrived, uh, as most people know, we were called D.C. Wassa, and um, I didn't like D.C. Wassa, and no, neither did anybody else for that for most part. We were one of the least liked agencies in the city, although it wasn't unusual in the water utility world. Most of us, and this is considered a virtue, we do our job really well in the water utility world, and if you don't know us, that means we've done it just right. That's the right. water comes to the spigot, and you turn it on, you don't have to think about it. Oh, it's there. That's a miracle of modern society, that 24 hours a day, there's clean water there. It's the most important public health improvement ever. And it's taken for granted. So our folks in a lot of, in the industry think that's so that's a badge of courage that no one knows what it takes to do that. And then when it goes down the drain, no matter what anyone has done with it, it disappears again. Gone. Another badge of courage. It goes away. We take care of all that. And to give you a sense of scale, we're pushing around the city about 110, 120 million gallons of drinking water every day. 120 million. So if you think of carrying a gallon of water home or milk from the from the store, how Daily. heavy that is? Daily. 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 120 million. Uh, 120, you, somewhat actually it's gotten less than that uh, because of conservation, which is a good thing, but it's an enormous quantity. And then we take everything back, treat it again, it goes back to Potomac from whence it came, which is the original and largest recycling program anywhere. Because <laughs> the water comes off the Potomac, we treat it, we send it out, everyone uses it, it comes back to us, we treat it, it goes back to the Potomac. 
the quantities going out is much bigger because we only serve drinking water in the district, but we uh, we don't call it wastewater anymore, as you know. We call it enriched water. Enriched water. I didn't but, know that. But as I it comes back to us, day. having been used by everybody and for whatever, however they use it, that's enriched to us because we turn it into a, a valuable resource. But that's more like 300 million gallons a day because we have this huge service area that serves Prince George's County, Montgomery County, Fairfax, Loudoun, and a little bit of Arlington. Most people don't know that. We're the only water utility in the country that crosses state boundaries, and we cross two or three, depending on how you see the district. I just I have to repeat things. Sure. 300-plus million gallons a day is going to the Blue Plains. Plant. That's on an average day. The, the, the thing about Washington, D.C., like 755 <clears throat> cities in the United States, there is an old sewer system. D.C. is one of the oldest, and it's not because we're the oldest city. It's because sewers were really built in earnest after it was determined that cholera and other illnesses were caused by waterborne illness. Before the 1850s, people thought it was the air, because the air in London was so bad, everyone figured that's what you got sick from, until John Snow, how's that for a name that's more in TV these days, he was the guy who figured out in London doing old-fashioned GIS work that it couldn't be air, because how come everyone gets sick on this street but not that street? And he tracked it down to water. That was 1850s. <laughs> so sewers start getting built in the 1860s in London and other big cities because of that discovery. And when does D.C. start to grow as a city? In the Civil War. We're always built big cities that run the operations. So we have one of the oldest sewer systems in the country. And the old part is called Combined. And I know you know well here what that is. Uh, Baltimore, Richmond, there's a lot of cities in the Chesapeake that have sewers that take both rainwater coming off the street. You see it go out, walk down the street in D.C. and see it go into a storm drain. wonder where that goes. Well, in the center of the city, it goes to the very same pipe that's connected to the bathrooms in any of the big ball buildings on the mall. And that works just fine on any normal day. But in a big storm... All that water pours into the pipe. It's too big, it's too much flow over the pipe, and it overflows. And that's a combination of water and sewage into the rivers. But at a peak, when those pipes are filled, we're handling about a billion gallons a day at Blue Plains. So average daily flow is 300 million, 350 million. We can handle a billion at a peak. That's a lot of stuff coming to us. And what you have done, you came at to D.C. Water in 2009? I, uh, yes. I'm, when I first came to D.C. this time, I've worked in and out of D.C. many right. times. I've gone my tours of duty, as I call them. <laughs> but Adrian Fenty, who was two mayors ago, uh, hired me to run the Department of Environment for the city. Um, and I was on the board of D.C. Wasit, as we were known, from 2007 to 2009. So I was affiliated, got to know the organization from a governance structure, which was very valuable to me when I then came in as GM in 2009. What, what, what I, in my simple mind, the way I view what you have done is you've constantly tried to make the system less expensive, more efficient, more protective of the environment, uh, more creative. Am I... Um, well, I appreciate that. I, I'm, I'm grateful uh, for that that's how you see us, because that has certainly been the effort. And... I won't go through the whole fist, but when I talk to water utility audiences around the country and even sometimes around the world, I always say that what I found when I came in, I never worked for utility. 
until 2009. I'd only ever regulated them, agitated against them, and sued them. Um, and here I was now running one, um, and a big one. I mean, our operating budget is almost $600 million a year. Our capital budget is almost 600. We're expending more than a billion dollars every year. It's just a huge operation, and I never even worked in one. So I'm sitting there in the desk in 2009, and I was absolutely panicked. And I call it the fist. Here we have a resource that's essential to every job and every life form in the nation's capital. Who else gets to have that responsibility? Second, it's in terrible condition. The Army Corps of Engineers, I mean, the American Society of Civil Engineers measures it at a D. D or a D minus. I give Ds in my class, but I don't want to give an F because I learned this the hard way. You give someone an F, there's extra paperwork. You give someone a D, they get the message, no paperwork. Aha. So we have a D. Third, people don't know us. Fourth, we have to raise hundreds of millions of dollars to improve the system. And fifth, these are the five pieces of the hand, the fist that's coming at me, is that we're considered very conservative, not politically, conservative in trying new things. We always do the same things. And that's what totally panicked me. Uh, we faced a capital budget that in 2009 to 2014 was going to increase by $100 million a year almost every year. Imagine facing that, 250 to 350 to 450 to 550. We peaked at 650, and we're hovering now in the upper 500s. So Let me interrupt. So where's that money come from? People. It's all the people we serve. Everything we do is all the credit that people have given us, and sometimes the blame. They come together, and we say it's ratepayers who have funded us. Without their support, we would be unable to do any of this. You have treated them as your customers. You've been and very customer-centric, and that was a change. That is a change. Well, And what I found when I got there, and this is what I call the hand, rather than the fist, that in fact, while I was panicked that first year, the eight and a half years since, despite all the great challenges, which are many and constant, it's been a fantastic run uh, and a fantastic experience. For, the for a different set of five, one is it's a wonderful product. Who else gets to, to deliver a product that supports every job and every life form? That's an incredible thing to have as your responsibility. Second, it hasn't been hard to make a connection to our customers. So we've rebranded to DC Water. Water is life is our phrase. We wanted people to know we were on their side in protecting their lives and the Chesapeake and the Potomac and the Anacostia and all the rest. Third, we've been able to raise the money by being smart and thoughtful about how we do it. Fourth, what I have found is that, in fact, our folks are really creative. Because when you're managing and fixing a system that has pieces on it from the 1870s and pieces on it from 2010, it's like having a car with parts on it from every model year over 100 years. It's almost and it's buried, so you don't even know exactly what you're going to find until you dig it up. And then when everybody's watching and no one has service, or everyone's watching, you got to fix it in real time with something that really matters to someone. So the creativity that our staff is using to keep this enormous system running, 45,000 valves, 9,500 fire hydrants, five pump stations, five above ground tanks, four below ground water reservoirs, two huge pump stations, this gigantic blue plane is the largest facility in the world. It's incredible the creativity they had already. I didn't bring that. All I did was bring a system in which that creativity could come forth. And it has. Okay. So I want to explore and get you to explain how you got to where you are today. But let's sure. let's give the punchline first. Sure. What's coming out of the back end of Blue Plains? What's that water quality like 
It's incredible. One of my favorite pictures, and it wasn't taken for this reason. I have a big picture of the Blue Plains on my wall, in part because if I'm talking to someone in my office, I can point things to them in the picture. It's panoramic. But it shows the Potomac in the back, and it shows our discharge, which is much bluer and cleaner than the river is itself. A bloom. A bloom of, of blue. Water, of clean as water as opposed to a bloom of polluted water. Imagine that. The Coming out of a sewage treatment. A giant, the largest. In the In the world. In the world. And, and uh, I was fascinated. I don't, I don't do it often, but National Harbor's not far from us to the south. And I was there for lunch. I usually eat lunch at my desk. And there was something going on, and I walked down to the water to see what it was. And, and Walmart has a national bass fishing tournament. And they have 10 stops in the United States. And one of the stops is from our discharge point to the Nats. The best bass fishing in all of the Potomac River is outside our plant <laughs> because the water's cleaner and it is it is driving all this aquatic growth aquatic growth outside of a gigantic treatment plant. Think on that. And you told me it is very close to drinking water it's quality. It's close to drinking water quality. It certainly could be used for other purposes uh, that's not totally potable, and maybe someday we will. So if you stayed another eight or ten years, that probably would be your we, next We objective. might get there. Yeah. We might get there. And, and in a, in a water-constrained world, which is certainly where we're going, that is we have an enormous resource, resource on hand that when needed, we could tap and do a few extra steps yeah. in the treatment process and have 300 million gallons of drinking water should we need it. So there's so many components of what you have done. Um, let's start with the waste to energy. Sure. And uh, that, that not only is producing energy, but is also making the treatment plant more efficient. Absolutely. Give us a... Gosh, it's, it's a sense of scale that most people uh, have never thought of before. So we have the 750 square mile of a huge metropolitan area, all of which comes daily to our plant. And we pull all that crud out, because that's what we don't want in the Potomac, the Rock Creek, the Anacostia, or the Chesapeake Bay. And, and we're left with it on the plant. 1,200 tons a day. 2,000 pounds to a ton. 1,200 tons, tons a day. Daily. Mm -hmm. Which in a giant tanker truck, full-size tanker truck, which is how we used to get it off the site, it was 60 tanker trucks a day. Every day. Day in and day out. 365 days a year. So our view was there's no such thing as a waste. That's why we call it enriched water. There's only wasted assets. So how could we turn this into a resource? Because that's the genius of ecology. The waste of any one organism is the food for another. So how could we use that same core principle? And the challenge we had was space. With 1,200 tons a day, there are other treatment plants that the word is digest. There's little bugs that eat that stuff, generate methane, you burn the methane, clean power. But let's just pause there. Just tell the listeners how sewage is treated. It's, it's, it's really, in this day and age, it's bugs. It's bugs, it's, the, it's biological treatment. You do, uh, some of it is very rudimentary. The first parts of treatment are gonna be screening and settling. But then you mostly have biological treatment in the secondary treatment, and then we have nitrogen. We actually add nitrogen and remove it, nitrogen denitrification, which is our tertiary treatment. Then we actually have the very largest pool filter on Earth because uh, the very biggest building at Blue Plains is at the back end because after it's gone through primary, secondary, and tertiary, then we pump it up to the second story where there's 80 swimming pool-sized pools with all the same strata you'd have at a drinking water site, not quite as clean that it goes through that filter. Then it goes to be chlorinated. Then we dechlorinate it. First you chlorinate it to make sure everything's dead, but you don't want chlorine going out to the Potomac, so you have to dechlorinate it then it goes out to the Potomac. Okay, so uh, if they get that, yeah. <laughs> back to 
what you're doing sure. with that material to reduce tons volume a day. and to get methane and energy out Our of it. problem was is these little bugs that happily eat this stuff and turn into methane takes 20 days. 20 days. For the bugs to do their job on a batch. Of a, on a batch, of and a duration. So a if duration. you're an engineering type, which I'm not, but if uh, my team would explain to me that given we have 1,200 tons every single day as throughput, we'd have to build so many digesters that we didn't have space at Blue Plains to do so. We are a constrained site. We have 295 on one side of us, Naval Research Center on the other, and the Potomac River. So there's nowhere for us to go in except in building within our footprint. So we were, we were unable to do what other places have done. And a lot of urban treatment facilities have that same problem. So this is a problem across the country. San Francisco is facing it today. So what we did is we looked worldwide and found a, a technology in Northern Europe called Canby. And it actually heats the material up at a very high temperature, 500 degrees and above, and high pressure. That burns off a lot of the material, so you're dropping the volume. Reduce it's the volume. Sterilizes it, so you, it's, it's a sterilization process like you'd sterilize anything, very high heat, and it's pressurized. And when that material comes out into a flash tank, the release of pressure and heat causes the cell walls to burst. So a less volume, cell walls bursting, going into the digesters mean the bugs can do their job more efficiently and faster. And when the cell walls burst? That's how the little bugs can get at right. that stuff and eat it faster and generate more methane. Right. So we are able now to fit the whole process on site. So we built the world's largest Canby-based thermal hydrolysis program, first one in North America of any size, and it's huge. You should come see it. It's really cool. And these gigantic digesters, there's four of them, 130 feet in width. That's about a 13-story building sitting on its side, 70 feet in, in height. I've stood inside one when it was being built, and you feel like you're in this gigantic cavern. We have four of those. So we can be, we heat it up, we burst the cell walls, reduce the volume, put it into the digesters. The bugs do their work, generate a tremendous amount of methane. For air quality, meth methane itself is a, is a real problem for climate change. So we wanted to have super clean turbines. We burn the methane directly in the turbine like a jet engine. But we have serial numbers one, two, and three because they were the first turbines of these kinds ever built to be super clean and built burning the methane. That's permanent 24 hour a day, 13 megawatts of clean power. 13 megawatts a day. A day. Whether the sun is out or, or not, or it's whether not the like wind, wind is, or solar, this is those are good is, too. We're not. Yeah. We're not oh, I love when we're about to do. By the way, a gigantic solar project because what do we have at Blue Plains? 150 space. acres of completely open space. There's no shade. It's all these big treatment cells. So we're going to build about six, seven feet off the ground, solar, and plank it over the whole place. God, nothing is stopping you. And generate another 13 to 15 megawatts of power. So we'll be up almost be self-sufficient on power. I was going to say, if you get to 26, is that close? It's yeah. close. That's probably 80% of the power. And, and one of the things we'd like to do is do a microgrid. Um, I did not realize a lot of it. Even though we generate that much power on site, what a microgrid allows you to do is route the power on site wherever you need it. And at the moment, we don't have that. So we can use it in a certain place. But if power went down, God forbid, we need power in certain places more than others, that would be in a grid. So just like any grid, you'd turn certain uses off, you'd make sure the ones you really need are on, and you'd route the power you have to where you absolutely need it to keep the core plant running. So our, our next goal is to do add solar, do a microgrid, combine that with our methane-based uh, power plant, 
and we'll almost be energy self-sufficient. We're already the largest improvement to climate, uh, uh, climate change in, uh, in, in, in climate change reduction in the mid-Atlantic because we're the biggest power user given... You are the biggest power we're user. We're the biggest yeah. power user for Pepco because we move so much material. It's really heavy and we're moving it all over the city. So we did a project that was the best project for reducing greenhouse gases because we use so much power and now we use much less. And our goal is to do even less than that. And think on it. There is a facility like Blue Plains. It may not be quite as big, but for the size of the community, they're everywhere. Every single one of these facilities should be generating power from their permanent green resource, which is this waste. It's feedstock. Always, it's they gonna all be there have the feedstock. Permanent. As long as we're alive, it's there. And they should be covering it with solar because they all have open land. And we, I could imagine that this sector becomes one of the most potent sectors for green energy to combat climate change because we're everywhere. And these projects make money. They improve the balance sheet for an enterprise. So we can improve the environment, do well by our ratepayers. We end up, by the way, and I know we had talked about this earlier, the material that's left over after all this, we call it bloom. And you can look <laughs> bloom. online, bloomsoil.com. We're selling it because it has a nutrient that is organic-based. So it's actually soils that have been only getting chemical-based fertilizer. This is really good. It has all sorts of other organic components that is really good for the soil. Farmers swear by it, and we're putting it on the market. We want to sell it as a soil amendment. And it's the highest rated The cleanest soil. kind of soil amendment, and this is highly regulated by EPA, as it should be. I mean, we have a lot of stuff coming into Blue Plains. You wouldn't want to have something coming from our facility that wasn't very carefully regulated and monitored, and this is. Class A is the highest level. Exceptional quality Class A is the highest of the highest level. And we're at the very high end of exceptional quality Class A. So it is, ex and that's only because we cook that stuff at incredibly high heat. And so that sterilizes it and it's ready to go. Almost as good as the compost coming out of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation's compost. I just saw your Clivus Multrum when I was we're here visiting your beautiful facility right on the water. And very similar. Yeah. And, and uh, we've tremendous demand for it because uh, our, we have some of our board members who have been sampling it. I have in our backyard, my tomatoes in bloom grow better. Uh, that's okay. So that's the measure. So uh, there's another incredibly creative, cost-efficient project you're working on using environmental impact bonds mm -hmm. to do a pilot project to see if you can reduce the amount of runoff from the land going into the sewage treatment plant. Correct? Sure, absolutely. Tell us about it. Sure. Well, the, the single biggest public works project going on in Washington, D.C. since Metro was built is ours. And that's solving this combined sewer problem that I described earlier. And it's mammoth. It's, it's $2.6 billion project. And most of it, when I arrived, was building, and still is building, huge underground tunnels. I mean, they're 10 to 15 stories underground, under Metro, under everything. Metro-sized tunnels. Bigger than Metro, bigger actually. Bigger than Metro. Deeper than, deeper than Metro. For the purpose of? The overflow. When, when a sewer that takes both rainwater and sewage into it, and all the rainwater pours in too much so it overflows, instead of it overflowing to a street or overflowing to the river, it will go down these drop shafts. It's like it's almost like a, TV, it's like a movie or something. It drops <laughs> 10 stories down these drop shafts into this mammoth underground tunnel that's 13 miles long. 22 feet in diameter, two basketball hoops 
plus. I've known about this for a long time, but even I wouldn't have told you it's that big. It's gigantic. <laughs> and the machine that drills the, the, the tunnel is more than a football field in length. That's how long that's. That's the machine. Yeah, look at the look at a football field. Our machine is longer than that. <laughs> it weighs twelve hundred tons. We've had three of an operation. A fourth will go in shortly. You We're, put it on a truck and you drive it to DC. Is we, that it comes <laughs> in in pieces. We <laughs> name them. We christen them. We give them their own Twitter accounts. They argue among themselves. They have personalities. Our machines do because we want it visible to our ratepayers to the extent it can be. But all of that is to manage combined sewer. And it's all hidden. That's one of the biggest challenges of our industry. So much of what we do is hidden. I, when I interviewed for the job eight and a half years ago, my top issue uh, for what I wanted to do when I came into the job was to modify that solution. There's nothing wrong with the big tunnels, but add green infrastructure. And that's something that you've done here at your facility and advocate all over the Chesapeake Bay. And just so people understand, you're storing the stormwater at times of high flow, and then after the rain events have stopped, then you're uh, then, it takes, to, then it goes on to the Blue Plains. Some of it goes to Blue Plains. Some of it, uh, I mean, what we're doing is, for example, we just had the kickoff of our first big project that we built. And we're replacing all of the asphalt, not all of it, most of the asphalt and the parking lanes of a street so that it's permeable. And we actually had the mayor and a whole bunch of dignitaries with a bucket of water because we had the permeable pavement right next to the hard pavement. And they poured it on the hard pavement. It pulled up and flowed off, went right permeable. <laughs> it disappeared as if it had been suctioned in. So it gets caught underground, and that water is actually channeled to the tree boxes that are right there on the street. So you hope to use that to have trees and bushes and greenery on that street, all sorts of benefits to air quality and heat island and just walking down the street. Aesthetic Where do I want benefits. on a hot day? I want to be under shade if, if I can be. Actually manages stormwater. The best management of stormwater is a tree canopy. Well, we can help make sure those trees are lively, are growing well, even when there's not as much rain because we store it underground when there is. And we're going to do about $150 million of green infrastructure in D.C., the biggest investment in that that's ever been made. But our first pro the question is, will it work? Because we know what a tunnel is, and we know how much it captures. I don't know the math myself, but I bet I might be able to figure it out, a pretty math challenge. You know the diameter and the length and the width and all that? You can do the math to know exactly how much combined sewage, sewage and rainfall, you fit in that tunnel. And you know how much it costs. We know how much a it lot. costs. A lot of money. And what we have to, we have demit, what we have committed to U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and the uh, agency that I used to run in the city, the District Department of Environment, actually it's now called the District Department of Energy and Environment, is that we're going to capture the same amount of water that we would in a tunnel with green infrastructure on the surface. So we'll have build all these installations to capture the water on the surface. And the question is, will it work? Because if it doesn't work, we'll go back to the tunnel. We've committed to a quantity amount that we must capture to protect the Potomac and the Chesapeake. If green doesn't work, we'll have to build the tunnel because we know the tunnel will work. I would prefer to do green. So the question was, how could we mitigate the risk if it doesn't work? So we negotiated an environmental impact bond. It was the first one uh, that we know of, uh, not just in the United States, anywhere. Environmental impact, impact bond. bond. And they've been used, social impact bonds have been used in other fields, had not been used in the environmental field that we're aware of. Although in some respects, it is better to use it in the environmental field because the trigger, what the notion of an impact bond is that an investor who wants to support you doing something will invest in your project. And if it doesn't work, pay you an extra amount so it's worth your while. 
And if it does work, you pay them back. So they get a little bonus if it works really well because you're all happy. If it doesn't work, your downside risk is covered. So it's like an insurance policy. But if it works as anticipated, there's no extra payment, which is what we believe will happen. But in the, in the social impact world, which is where this has been done before, it's sort of tough to do. It's often for recidivism or something where it's people change so much. In water and stormwater, we can measure almost to the gallon. So we can set performance triggers for the poor performance or good performance and then measure to see if we get it. So you've obviously had to do baseline studies. At baseline you, studies. You know what that particular land mass used to shed. Correct. And you'll be able to measure how much is being saved and utilized for growing Correct. green plants and trees. And the environmental impact bonds is designed. It's, it's an insurance policy that we don't have to pay for the insurance part of it unless the performance is really good. And if it's really good, we'll all be happy. Because if it turns out that green infrastructure collects more stormwater than we expected, we're going to have to build somewhat less acreage because we've, we've committed to a quantity of capture. But we would only pay that if there's super performance. If there's poor performance, we're going to have to redesign everything. Right. And that's the payment we'll get from the investor back, which will cover our costs. So our ratepayers didn't take the risk of us adopting green infrastructure. And where, where are we in the process? It's a, it's, it's a pilot project first. The correct? bond has been issued. We've raised the money. It was very successful at Calvert. Actually, today, the Calvert Foundation changed their name. I think they're called Calvert Impact Investors. Oh, really? Yeah. For this very reason. This is what they do. Um, and, and Goldman Sachs and was Goldman an Sachs, their, yeah. their community investment arm, bought the $25 million in bonds. <coughs> if the green infrastructure performs as we expect, it'll just be a standard uh, uh, tax-exempt bond. It's only if it's poor performance and we would need to redesign what we're doing, we'll get a payment to help cover that cost. That's our insurance policy. If it performs incredibly well, we'll pay Calvert and Goldman a bonus, but we'll be happy to do that. Out of the cost savings? Out of the cost savings we'll get. So it's, everybody wins. Mm -hmm. And in our case, honestly, we probably would have done the green infrastructure anyways with a standard bond. But we want, this is sort of innovation. We wanted to see the kind of instrument we could put together. And there are many communities where they might not do green infrastructure at all unless they had an EIB to cover their risk if it doesn't work. So what I'm hopeful is that this instrument will be one of the tools that will enable more communities to consider using green infrastructure rather than just pipes and sewers because those are what, those, it's not easy. They work, they're good but they don't add all these other benefits. One of the other benefits, by the way, that we really love and was at the, at the announcement we had last week is we had a gentleman who had gotten a job as a certified green infrastructure. We created a certification program that's national, so you can get certified as green infrastructure maintenance construction. He needed a job, he got trained, he's got a new job, and you should have heard him speak. We had him speak, he's like, this is my community. I can't believe how fortunate I am to be doing not only a good job and good work, but doing something that matters in the place. I feel like a million. I mean, he was just That's incredible personal story. And the folks who build the tunnels are great, but the sand hogs go from project to project. They're experts at it. You don't really do local hiring to do deep tunneling work. Green infrastructure is employment and companies that work in your town. That's in addition to all the environmental benefits and what it does to the, the amenities and the quality of the city itself. It's so many wins. So, so George, uh, we, we want to wrap up, sure. but um, 
there's one other aspect of what you've done, and I think it's known as the Innovation Project. Sure. Can you tell us a little bit sure. about that? Um, and it's related, actually, back to ratepayers, um, which is I am very aware that I have significantly increased rates and charges to our customers to pay for all this work. So we're always anxious to see if we can figure out any new sources of revenue, because it's a real challenge to a lot of our customers. And we have plenty of people who can pay in D.C., but we have a lot of people who this is a struggle, and they have to pay it. It's their, it's their water bill. So we're looking around for what innovations. And what we've created in, at D.C. Water is that everybody innovates. I don't care what you do. I don't care how you do it. You know your job better than anyone else in the enterprise. And I bet at some point, at some day, you're going to think, I could do this better, faster, or cheaper. So the question is how to capture those ideas and turn them into actual services that we can offer to ourselves and our customers, but also others. By the way, we have created a nonprofit affiliate called Blue Drop. We are selling goods and services. We have 12 patents. We are doing licenses and all this other stuff with, with firms to put products out on the market to generate revenue that's not ratepayer revenue. But my favorite innovation story, it turns out that the piece of material uh, equipment that you open a manhole with, and you walk down the street, see a manhole, it's about two and a half feet in length. So it comes up to your hip. It's got a hook on one end, because the manhole has those two notches on either side. You not put it in the notch, and you pull that huge thing up. From so it's pulled, not levered. It's pulled. It's pulled. And, okay. and it's only about two feet. So if you design something to harm your back, that's what you would design. That's what I was going to say. Because it's so short, you have to stand to the side. So it's an asymmetrical, that's what the doctors say. It's an asymmetrical weight. You're pulling, you have to, it's terrible. So one of our longest standing employees, he's probably got 30 years of, of he was like, why are sewer picks, is what they're called, so short? And why don't they have a crooked handle in them, like, you know, the crooked handles snow shovels? And he worked in our machine shop. He made one. And, and we are innovations video has no words, nothing. We show it to all our team. It's him in the machine shop making this thing, which we have patented as the new sewer pick. It's full length, so you can stand with your, have your, and it's got the crook in its handle, so you don't have to bend over. And we believe every, you don't replace sewer picks all that often because right. they're iron. I mean, they don't wear out but very much. But there are plenty of sewage treatment Pl they're everywhere. operations and, around the world. And that's my, my view of innovations. Everybody has got the idea. I don't care what you do. If you order papers that are better, faster, cheaper way for our ratepayers, we want to know about it. And what, when I came in, everyone's saying, oh, it's conservative, not politically, but no one changes. It's unbelievable the flowering of creative ideas that we're seeing. We have to pick and choose and have a committee that just selects which ones we're actually going to do because so much is bubbling up. Part of the culture. But that's a wonderful place to be. And that's why I, I appreciate, and it, and it has been a privilege and an honor, and I get a lot of kind comments. I get a lot of other comments, too, when water main breaks and sewer line back up. So they come both ways. How many employees? We have 1,200 employees, about 6,000 contractors at any given time. Um, and But it's the team. The, the greatest thing about the job, I always say this, is on a bad, my bad day is a good day. Because a bad day when, is when something bad has happened. But that's when I see our team collect together. Everyone works together. They be, they're so creative. Everyone just wants to get a solution in place to serve the customer. And I love watching our team. I don't want problems, but I love how well they band together and work as a team. So my bad day is a great day. And this creativity and innovation and, and commitment to public service that's at D.C. Water is something that's been a privilege to be part of. And it's just it's wonderful to see. George Hawkins, uh, head of D.C. Water, the effort that takes care of all drinking water and enriched water 
in Washington, D.C. and the metropolitan suburbs, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come out here uh, and sit with us and uh, tell this amazing story. Thank you very much. It's been an honor and a pleasure. And like I said, as I was growing through my career, this is a place I always looked up to. So it's an honor and privilege for me to be here. So thank you for having me. Very, very nice. This is Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Every two weeks, our podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. <laughs>